It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. A boy and his dog is over. Now, let's run through the modern presidents. Charles Champlin of the Los Angeles Times says, A coherent alternate world. Kind of a funny nightmare recited as upcoming fact. It is an offbeat delight. KMET Radio, Los Angeles. Gripping, horrific, a bitter vision of tomorrow. Tightly controlled, compelling, bizarre, and witty. Time Magazine's Richard Schickel says, Ironic, risks being absurd, yet compels respect for some witty writing and well-paced direction. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times says, Wacky success, weird, offbeat, Unique, magnificently inspired. Richard Eder of the New York Times says, Brilliantly grotesque. The Austin Sun, this may be the best science fiction film ever made. A Boy and His Dog. A film that has become a cult legend. Right now I'm hungry and I want to get laid. That's 
what you always say. You go find a chicken, I'll hustle us up some food. I can't do good work when I'm hungry. You ain't pulling that crap on me again. And you can shove that part about how you lost the ability to hunt for food when you learned how to talk. No food, no females. Andy, this movie, oh my God. Why didn't you make me watch this movie earlier? <laughs> I am glad to hear that uh, it hit you right. It's This is a very strange movie. I had seen it once. I, I can't remember. It had been a while, but I always remembered this box in the video store because the box in the video store was the poster where it's the, the nuclear mushroom cloud with the smiley face on it. Mm-hmm. And I always, like that just always stuck with me. And I'm like, okay, that is a crazy film. What is this about? I didn't watch it for a long time, but I finally did. And I was like, that was a bonkers movie. What the hell was happening there? And then I kind of forgot about it. And then as we were building our series for this year, this, I mean, this series may have been the one I was most looking forward to because, I mean, geez, we get to talk about a boy and his dog. Uh, we get to talk about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Rollerball. Uh, and then we're throwing Dark Star, kicking off some John Carpenter. It's a really interesting set of films. And, um, I, I don't know. It just really excited me. So getting to revisit this and, and rewatching this, I'm like, this movie is just crazy bonkers. And what an interesting, like double feature. This would be with uh, one of the Mad Max films. Like there's such an interesting dystopian future that is set out in this film that it just really, really fascinated me. Oh, there, there really is. You know, there's also such a, like the, there's such a weird vibe that put me right in the same sort of headspace that I get into when I watch my favorite Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. Like it is, it has that sort of hyper real and yet we're just friends making movies and all we have is like pancake makeup. And so we're going to do something fun underground. And, uh, like it, it just, it's weird. It is pretty rapey. Like it doesn't, <laughs> well, there's, it, yeah. it's not dated. It doesn't, it, it's pretty dated. It doesn't hold up well, sort of in some of the, the cultural elements. I, th- I think are, are a bit, maybe they're statement based. I've only seen this once. And so I'm kind of letting it settle in uh, a little bit, but I think it's, it's really interesting the way they play gender politics as tools right but i i will tell you i really enjoyed my watch of this movie maybe a surprise but i deeply enjoyed watching this movie super fun it's definitely an interesting film and you can see why it is viewed as misogynistic or as you said it's rapey but what i find so fascinating about this is this vision of like this post-apocalyptic future this is after you know world war four you know it's a it's kind of a revisionist timeline that really starts after according to the book the um kennedy it ends up being a failed assassination and so kennedy is the president and then uh for a number of years and then he ends up um, leading the world into world war three which goes on for i think like 20 years or something like that and then uh, and then every, there's a peace for a long time. And then finally, in 2007, World War Four starts. And it only lasts five days because it's a nuclear war. And that pretty much ends everything. And society's pretty much obliterated. And there are people living underground who have survived and are trying to make societies. There are the screamers, which are kind of the nuclear mutants that have been left that are kind of glowing green and wandering around. And then there are the people who are trying to survive on the irradiated leftovers of the surface in thinking about like what a post-apocalyptic world would look like. I'm like, you know, 
for a boy who whose parents are killed at the uh, with the war it kind of ma- and then he really is kind of raised with his telepathic dog blood like it kind of makes sense that he's raised in this animalistic way where it's all about urges and his id and i just want sex and i got to find a woman cuz i just want sex and and kind of coming up the, this deal to uh to help blood find food and then blood uses his telepathy to find women and that's kind of the society that has been made and you know i appreciate these views of kind of dystopian futures that feel like you know people have gone to these base animal instincts i mean it's kind of like the road where you have people finding other people just to save as food to cannibalize because that's kind of what they have to do and you really end up getting dark views of the future and so it definitely has that kind of misogynistic and rapey tone throughout but at the same time i i think that there is this interesting balance it's not always perfect and i i I think there's an interesting element with you know the difference perhaps between the original material and the way that lq jones wrote it and directed it but i do think that it is painting kind of a dark and perhaps frighteningly somewhat realistic way that things would go should we end up in a future like this i would say i agree with everything you said i don't know that i would say realistic i would say believable to me like maybe it's not realistic but i believe that this is one potential horizon that that we could go so i mean i totally i totally get it i think the the reason the for for me and this is some things you know are about to come out of your mouth and you know you're going to regret it but you're going to say it anyway the reason the misogyny plays in this movie, it's horrible, but it's because of how Don Johnson is is also violated uh, later in the movie when he's hooked up to the semen sucking machine, which is really <laughs> bad yeah. uh, and and gross and also cringe. And there are so many words. It's rough watching sort of both of those sequences, like how they choose to to use and and manipulate him. And then, you know, I, I would just uh, that that part sort of gives I don't know, does it give balance to the force to the cultural force of the movie? Everybody is taken advantage of everybody is used Everybody is a target for food, right? The cannibalistic, you know, topside is nothing. I, I think part of the the moral message of the movie is quite seriously, nothing is sacred anymore. Nothing. Yeah. I, I think that very much fits. Uh, I think that, you know, we do end up in a society that has decided what they're going to do with Vic or Albert or whatever his name is, what his future is going to be if he goes down and stays in this underground bunker is he's going to be hooked up to a machine and, and semen milked to provide something for all these women. And the way that it it's kind of described is it's only for 35 women and then he would be killed or as they say, sent to the farm, which is essentially, you know, he gets killed where their bodies are sent there for fertilizer essentially. And so, like, it's not a great future. And so, yeah, I mean, they are kind of, as you say, kind of using him as just the same way that he's using the women. And it becomes this, uh, again, we're, we're no longer living as humans. And it's, it creates an interesting 
kind of space for this society to be dwelling in that I think actually works quite well. I think one of the specific lines, I know some of the lines were changed from the book to the movie when Al Q. Jones wrote it. One of the lines that uh, I think caused some of the controversy, certainly Harlan Ellison, who wrote the original material, did not like it at, at all. The way that the book originally ended was he had the book end with Vic remembering when he was talking to Quilla June um, as blood is eating. And it was the conversation where uh, she asked him, do you know what love is? And his answer was, sure, I know a boy loves his dog. And that's, I guess, the way the book ends in the film. It ended up being kind of this uh, this tongue-in-cheek line as they are walking away, having just eaten Quilla June as dinner, and Blood says, well, I'd say she certainly had marvelous judgment, Albert, if not particularly good taste. And then they kind of <laughs> laugh at the fact, ah, good, good taste, get it? Good taste, yeah. And yeah. that was... Uh, one of the problems is uh, with the lines that, that felt more chauvinistic in kind of their the way that they're portraying that. And I, I can understand that, like, when you have little changes like that, that can end up kind of subverting some of the stuff that you're trying to do and kind of making it fair as far as like how everybody is being depicted. Yeah. I think the degree to which you appreciate this movie is the degree to which you find it funny, right? The the black of the black comedy and the satire. And like, if you don't get laughs out of the relationship between Blood and uh, and Don Johnson, uh, I, I mean, I can see how this would be just a slog of of sullen wandering through an afterlife that nobody really nobody really wants. Like, I. I get I get that and I can see why this movie is controversial. For me, just the relationship between Don Johnson and Vic Albert whatever and and Blood, I I found funny enough to really like how it was put together and that sort of thing. I, I mean as soon as I was laughing at that, I was able to take the rest of the movie, you know, with that same degree of lightheartedness and uh so I I enjoyed that piece of it. Blood is pretty much, I mean, we know where Don Johnson went. We know where some of the other sort of bigger names in this movie kind of ended up. But Blood is the biggest of the big names in my book. Blood was the Partridge Family Dog Tiger. Oh, my God, Andy. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to think about that. That what, like, it completely recontextualizes the Partridge Family. That's really funny. Not having uh, watched or grown up with the Partridge family, I would never have put two and two together for that one. But that is pretty funny. I'm sorry that you don't have that. That's like seeing Toto in a different movie. You're like, wait a minute, what? No, no, no. That dog belongs to Dorothy. Like, I, I totally understand, <laughs> you know, where you're coming from. Yes. Uh, yeah, for sure. I found that particular character choice, that relationship choice, just particularly good for me. And I think the the lessons that we get out of those two, that it's blood who is this for some, I'm, I wrote it off to radiation. Maybe you know more from, from the book or whatever, but uh, there's some sort of thing that made blood what he is, this sort of telepathic dog who can only connect to this boy, Don Johnson, who, let's be honest, Don Johnson was born Sonny Crockett, like... There's nothing else really until Knives Out that he does where he's not kind of Sonny Crockett to me. And this was just, oh, look, a young Sonny Crockett. 
even wearing the shoulder holster, holster with no shirt, uh, I thought was was choice. But the fact that their relationship was what it was and that it was blood that was sort of the teacher-professor role to this human who was vastly less humane and sophisticated than the dog was, I thought was an interesting twist. I, I liked it. I mean, we have lots of animal-human relationships in film, and this is one that I, I thought was, was at least compelling. It absolutely is. And I think that's what makes it so interesting is that it is this telepathic dog that is much more intelligent and has been kind of raising this boy. Again, it is a dog. So, you know, it's there is this sense of kind of the animalistic urges and the way that they kind of make their bargaining chips and everything. But at the same time, the dog knows the history and the dog is teaching Vic the history. And so, Vic can kind of have some sense of an understanding as to where what happened in the world and how did they get here. And so that allows for much more interesting relationship when you have this this dog. I mean, in a way, it's kind of like Peabody and his boy Sherman sort of thing, where it's the smart dog who's kind of training the young person. It's just Sherman, in that case, grew up with, you know, an animalistic dog as his companion and thereby does not necessarily have the understanding of the way to be human. And so that's what makes this relationship so interesting in these two characters, such fascinating characters and such an interesting relationship in in their desires, in the way that they work together, all the way up through to the end when Vic makes the choice between blood and Quillajune and sides with blood and helping blood out and kills Quillajune so that he and blood can eat up and, uh, you know, blood can gain his strength and they can hit the road again and on their search for over the hill. I mean, it just it's such an interesting way to portray it. I am interesting. I mean, you, you've seen it before and I'm, I, you know, you'd be forgiven if you don't remember, but I absolutely did not see that twist coming at the end. Right. I looked at the at the I paused the movie to look at where we were. And there were like three minutes and 47 seconds left playtime. And I thought, how are they going to write their way out of this corner that they that they put them in? This is this is Sophie's choice. And it turns out it wasn't at all. It was an easy (laughs) choice that was handled in a fade to black. And I I laughed out loud like that. I thought that was that was a fantastic twist. Do you remember your experience? That's one of the things that stands out, I think, with it is it's I I suppose in like a story about humans, you kind of expect the humans to side with humans and the fact that he ends up siding with the dog or I, I suppose it could have been like he and Quilla walk off and leave blood to his own devices um, but the fact that it's not just leaving Quilla to her own devices, but it's actually killing her and eating her and using her to give blood the sustenance he needs to actually gain his strength back. Like that, I think, is the big surprise that we get here. And I just I wasn't seeing that coming. And it was just such a shock that I I don't know, I, I find it to be a real success of an ending and um, such an interesting surprise that really defines kind of the relationship. And also, I mean, it really is a, a very big element of this world and perhaps another element some people saw as misogynistic but it just speaks so much to the relationship and who these characters are so it it's just (laughs) such a shocking but brilliant ending yeah and what's funny about that ending is that it doesn't necessarily that of all things in this movie is not the does not communicate the vibe of misogyny to me it communicates the setup like the punchline to the setup the movie's been making the whole time again nothing is sacred not even human life when it comes to sustenance and survival and 
the fact that he made the choice for his dog educator, you know, only in hindsight, I recognize, isn't a surprise at all. It's not a surprise at all. Yeah, no, it really it it, it fits in line with their characters and the, what we've set up. I mean, even from the title, like that's where we are with this story. Yeah, you know, and so right. very interesting. But it just it makes for a, a a very bleak and kind of darkly comic ending when you see the two of them walk away. Darkly comic, as opposed to lightly comic when they're watching the movies and the. <laughs> he wants popcorn so hard oh and and that that little twist when they get in their chairs up front and he says see how it's done and he's trying to get to to get the guy next to him to give him some popcorn the guy keeps moving away and that again is the punchline like nothing is sacred like people have they've forgotten all humanity if they don't give a pleading dog a little popcorn which i think as an aside is really bad for dogs so don't give your dog popcorn that's not great <laughs> it's really clever and and just i i don't know i i enjoy the relationship of these two tim mcintyre does the voice of blood i guess at one time there was talk of having it being i think james cagney is who they were wanting to have be the voice but they realized the voice was way too recognizable and would be a big distraction so they did a huge number of auditions for this and tim mcintyre is a voice actor and he also did some of the music for the film. Um, does the voice fit the dog for you? I mean, in our member pre-show chat, we were talking about some of our favorite dog movies and Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs came up and you were talking about how perfectly like those voices fit kind of the breed and the type and uh, kind of the look of the dogs. Like, what did you think of his voice for this dog? Well, I thought it was great. And to be honest with you, it's a while before we get to Jason Robards in the movie, right? He's underground. And when the movie started, I actually, I knew Jason Robards was credited in the movie. And I thought it was Jason Robards as the voice of blood. And in my head, that never really changed, even as I'm looking at the credits and I see, oh, there's Tim McIntyre. He's the blood (laughs) voice. But really, it was Jason Robards, right? My headcanon was set. So that sort of gravelly voiced sophisticated gentleman voice was perfect it was perfect for me especially in the body coming out of this shaggy dog body i thought that was again that was um i I thought perfect yeah it's i mean it really it's not like a you know you'd you'd picture somebody partnering with something like a rottweiler or a pit bull or something <laughs> like in their, yeah. in their future quest for dogs, you're not going to picture kind of the, just this shaggy dog that is kind of running along with them. And it made it for really funny to have. And yeah, the voice the, what I liked so much about the voice is it doesn't stand out. Like it doesn't turn into like Bill Murray as Baloo. It's not like this cartoonish voice that just doesn't, doesn't, or that ends up becoming so creating kind of a caricature of the dog it's just a voice and to that end i found that it was actually uh, really interesting now i you know i really love the world building here like we get not a lot just to kind of set things up but we really get a sense of the way that society has gone we see you know in one point they come across a roof of something in the ground and like the whole thing has kind of been buried and so it sets up a really interesting it's almost like the Mad Max society without gasoline is kind of the way that I picture it, you know. But one of the things that I was a little unclear on is just exactly who can communicate with the dogs. Like, do you have to have training to the dogs? Because it seems sometimes like multiple people can hear dogs. Like at one point we have uh, Vic starting to try talking with the dog underground. And it's like, did that dog also talk or was that? 
a non-talking dog and he didn't know and he was just talking to him. Clearly, Quilla June couldn't hear at all when Blood was talking. And likewise, the guy with the popcorn. And so where was the line? Like, did you ever have a full understanding of kind of what was going on with that? Well, you have just actually opened my world a bit because I never actually saw that. To me, the only communication between animal and person was our Vic and, and Blood. But now that you say it, there is a sequence where I think Blood says something to the tune of like, there's there's another another dog must have sniffed him out, which I guess insinuates maybe that there is and there are other relationships between dogs and people i just never i didn't catch it on my first watch yeah and it's it's something that i was picking up a little more on this one because i mean there is that little dog that that vic picks up underground and what's their robot (laughs) the robot down there is michael uh he uh, gives it gives it back Jesus. to Jason Robards uh character Lou and says yeah he was you know starting to talk with this one and I'm like oh so what was he having a conversation with him and we just weren't hearing like exactly what was happening there I wasn't sure but that was an interesting element because reading up I haven't read the book but the, just reading up on it it's this alternate timeline here's what um a kind of a breakdown diverging with the failed assassination of president John F Kennedy instead of concentrating on the space race Technological advancements in robotics, animal intelligence, and telepathy take place. And so clearly society was really working on developing telepathy. And then after like the nuclear fallout, in addition to creating things like the screamers, you ended up with some of these like telepathic telepathic dogs. And according to the story, like they can no longer hunt, they can't forage for themselves. And so they need to make these partnerships with, with men so that the men can feed them, but then they compensate by their job is to then find the women. And that kind of becomes part of this world. I don't know, maybe it's like when it connects with the person, that's the only person it talks with or something. Yeah, maybe. And I I don't think, I mean, I don't know. It seems like that wasn't the most important thing for them to get across in the movie because it's not, I don't think that's slam dunk clear. No, I, I think that they maybe smartly gloss over that quite a bit. I think the only reason I ended up having any confusion with it is because of the conversation or because when Vic picks up that other dog underground, he actually starts trying to talk to him. And that was the only moment that I'm like, wait a minute, you know? And that so weird little moment of confusion there. Totally. Let's see. So uh, Suzanne Benton plays uh, Quilla June. She's the the great betrayer, right? She's the lure to get Vic down underneath because he's a strapping, young, masculine boy. And they need his essence. (laughs) Uh, What do you you think of that whole whole line? Through the story, she seems like a woman who's in hiding, right? She's, uh, which I think actually plays in an interesting way. Like, they come across her in this place where it's kind of this you know makeshift town where um you can you know check your guns in it it's you know and they they go watch these stag films eat some popcorn and stuff nary a woman to be seen because this in this society like women have largely kind of disappeared uh, probably because they're raped and killed or they end up all underground and that seemed to be kind of the way it worked and so Nobody's really expecting a woman to be out, and she's disguised herself, she's hidden herself, and they only find her again, as you said, because Blood is able to track her with his telepathy, and they follow her to this YMCA that's kind of half-buried. That ends up becoming this interesting sequence where 
you know, he's watching her and kind of starts, you know, he, he's basically set up to rape her up until other bandits show up and then they have to kind of stop these other bandits and weirdly that ends up kind of creating this moment for the two of them to i don't want to say bond but um it certainly becomes a moment where let's just say they warm up to each other a little bit and it turns into this crazy time of sex while they're waiting for all these um, raiders to go away that was what was interesting is like for somebody who theoretically is afraid of getting raped, she's very open to having sex and very excited about the idea of having sex. And then she leaves. And, you know, we kind of already know what's going on if we're paying attention because you see those feet earlier in the film when they're watching Vic and you have that great line that, uh, as we later find out, is Jason Robards. But he says, that's our boy. Put out the cheese. <laughs> yeah. Such a great line. And she's the cheese. And we realize, okay, she's so the they are luring him. And so he follows her into this underground bunker. And yeah, I think that was really interesting. What I liked about her character is, and you know, again, this speaks perhaps a little against the misogyny angle is she's not happy with this setup that they have underground. Her dad, along with two others, have created this board and they don't want anyone else to be on it. She kind of did this mission assuming that she would get to be on the board, but they kind of basically reject her. And so she partners up with some of her young friends and they basically put a plan in place to take over everything and they end up freeing Vic in order to help them. And so I really liked the way that all of that played out. I think she has a really interesting story thread through the whole thing of the way that she is it seems like there is this interest and like for Vic, but at the same time, just like her dad, she's just constantly thinking of ways that she can use him. So I, really interesting character, I, th- I thought. Yeah, I, I thought so, too. And, you know, you bring up Mad Max, like the, the entire inspiration behind the last Mad uh, Fury Road, the role of women in that movie as breeders, I think was really interesting breeders to the king and and it's a very similar thing we have here where that sequence underground in the in in that 1950s uh sort of half reality of old americana because they didn't i guess have enough cues to what that was really like so they recreated what they could get like that whole sequence of of saying hey every 10 years we need to find this young man who can donate his essence to us and line up all of the women getting married to make use of his of his uh semen i thought that was it that was just sort of again in in terms of black satire it was super funny and awful right like the fact that they have to even go through a marriage in order to do it <laughs> yeah they have to go through a marriage like that that entire sort of cultural bastardization of what was even though what was was a little weird too what they recreated in here i thought was you know sort of perfect for her story and this whole kind of rebellion angle that's where this movie feels short to me if there's anything that i feel unrequited about in this movie and i think the movie could handle is an extra half hour that is dedicated to the story of the people who are trying to upend the underground. And I think that felt super rushed to me. And and uh, and I just I could have used more of it. I like that part. I loved that part. I think it absolutely speaks to the struggles of trying to create a society in this situation. And I, I agree. Like, I, I don't know if it needed more time, but I really ended up finding it just a lot of dissatisfaction with kind of the final resolution there because... 
that we have the committee come out and sit there after the escape. They're sitting in the the grounds. They they basically call everybody out there to have another uh, big board meeting, and they bring out Michael, who is their robot. I guess the other thing that we yeah, he's our only clue into this, but there also were these leftover military androids that were kind of. Uh, roaming the surface and I, i'm assuming that he was one of these that they had reprogrammed to work with them well it sounds like they have a whole bunch of michaels hiding away somewhere but i it frustrated me that when they say okay yeah you know send them to the farm immediately for all of these uh, people that are helping kula june escape that they all just stand there and they're like watching him come toward them. And I'm like, that was a struggle for me. I'm like, you know, at least, you know, run, fight back something. Give me a little more there. I would really like to see this grow into an actual rebellion. Like I thought they could have done something really interesting there. And I don't know if that was a budget thing or what, but it plays fine. But like you, I, uh, I would have liked that to develop into something a little bit more. Well, that's actually interesting. One of the things I was trying, and this is me rationalizing totally as I'm watching the movie, because I had the same thought, but uh, of, you know, why aren't they, if this is a rebellion and they're breaking them out, they're already doing an act of violence against the culture that they built underground. Why are they not trying to fight the robot? Why aren't they running away? And part of what might be interesting is that they're trying to, or at least Jones is trying to communicate, hey, you know, as much as they're trying to rebel, they're is no culture of rebellion. They don't know how to do it. So they do this wrong thing, but they still are sort of programmed to accept the punishment. And the punishment is go to the farm, the farm upstate. Is that what we're alluding to? Maybe, which is you're you're being killed and taken off the out of the underground. I, I thought that was interesting. And maybe I can make it play that way in my head. But I'm I'm with I just think there was more needed there. Yeah. Yeah, especially because, like, I, I think that is one of the strengths of Quilla June as a character is giving her that agency through that whole sequence of, like, her reason to even free Vic so that he can help them. And then eventually just saying, forget it, let's just you and me escape to the point where they run out. Like, it was really building into something interesting. And I would like to have seen that really become her character's. Uh, journey, like a stronger journey for her through that all the way up to that end, which builds to, the, again, it's a perfect ending. And I would love to have had just a little bit more in that section that could have uh, even made it better. Yeah, uh, right. All the way up to the ending, which is not sympathetic at all and could have been right. Absolutely could have been had we gotten a chance to get to know that character. And so I think what the ending does right now is it's comedic to me. It's comedic and, and sat satirical. And what it isn't is heartfelt because I don't care about her necessarily. The movie knows that I care about the boy and his dog. They put it on the tin. And so I'm I'm OK with where it went, but it would be interesting to see how it feels to watch a, a character with a bit more meat on the bones actually have to suffer that particular fate. Make that a, a real choice, a hard choice for me and not just Vic. Yeah. Weird film. Can I just ask you about the trailer? Like the trailer makes the movie look even more bonkers than it actually is. What do you think they're going for? Well, I don't know. I, I saw a... A later trailer that was like a, a, a quote trailer with a bunch of critics. Is that the one you're talking about? Oh, Cause then no. I'm not sure I saw the same trailer as you. No, it's, it's a, it is a flash cut trailer with just title screens and color. And it just, it's one of those trailers that just takes a few frames of all the most maniacal faces 
and puts it all together as if it's more of a it's just more. It's like amped up, more violent, more hypersexualized, uh, more just insanity than even exists in the movie, which is which is weird. But uh, in terms of the the power of editing, the trailer that I saw at least nailed what trailers could do, even though it also is not a great reflection of the movie. It maybe is a reflection of the movie's id. That may exactly be it. I'm looking at it right now and yeah, it's flashing words on the screen like popcorn, irreverent, happy, tender. Yeah. And it's just, it's incredibly fast cutting throughout the whole thing. Sensuous, awesome, and uh, repeating words, repeating images, a lot of uh, quick cuts. And it's playing that like John Philip Sousa march music that they the <laughs> they're marching to underground, and that's all you hear. Because a high school marching band is Americana. Talk about an artifact like cherry picking Americana for the underground civilization. I thought that was really uh, that was a great great touch. It was a really interesting way to kind of create society where they're taking all the things like we want to create recreate this older society, and it just it's so artificial and like the the that pancake makeup that they all put on to. I mean, I'm assuming we don't really see it, but you kind of assume that they're living underground. So they're probably just not getting any uh, vitamin D and their skin is probably just ghostly pale, but it's, it's interesting that that's what they're putting on such an interesting group. Jason Robards is leading that group. Uh, again, you mentioned earlier, we don't really get him until, you know, toward the end. I mean, he comes in like around two thirds of the way in this society, the father of this society, we'll just say, I mean, what do you think of him in this film? He totally plays. He totally plays. I mean, as the patriarch who also has to communicate the same bit of weird Americana that the entire community espouses, I think he's kind of perfect with his bow, like Colonel Sanders tie. And uh, it's just a weird mashup of anachronism that I think plays. And I think, you know, his voice is is, you know, one of the things that makes his character so uh, powerful as a leader of this this weird community, and I think he he plays it. It's weird to see his face in this weirdo movie, but uh, yeah, I think he's great. Uh, we talked about LQ Jones recently because uh, for our member bonus episode last month, uh, we were looking at Peck and Paws The Wild Bunch, and LQ Jones is an actor in that, and we talked in that a little bit about how he also ended up uh, having a you know, relatively short directing career. I mean, he directed... Um, this film, one other film, and then like an episode of The Incredible Hulk. Not a lot of directing. In the scope of what he's doing here, does it feel like somebody who hasn't directed a lot? Or how did it come across as far as the direction? To me, yes. It's it's part of the charm of the movie that it feels like this was made by a guy who has been intimately involved in so many productions and just needed to kitchen sink a movie of his own. Like, this feels very much like I'm going to put everything I've ever thought about movies into this movie and see what happens. That That's the vibe that I get from this movie. And, he, you know, I mean, I, I think you can you, you could probably make the case that he didn't uh, that, that this was I don't know, this is his his uh, what's the word like the not swan song, because this wasn't the last thing he ever did, but it certainly did not spark much of a directorial career. No, yeah, it, it. I think that's it. It seemed like 
I mean, exactly what you said, like this is a person who loved acting, loved being in these stories, was in a huge variety of films from the 50s all the way into the 2000s, and uh, along with TV, I mean, he was a very, very busy actor. I've seen him in countless things. I mean, uh, both film and TV, a face that we recognize. I think we've talked about him on uh, some shows like The Edge, and it does feel like a story that he just clicked with. And I think you're right. It feels like, uh, I don't want to say a student film, but it feels like a film made by somebody who's been on a lot of sets um, and is kind of feeling his way around directing. Like some of it feels a little sloppy with the way it's put together, but it always feels incredibly invested in. Like he loves this story so much, really wants to tell it and is like, I think he does a great job with the world building and kind of capturing everything. It just like, sometimes it just feels a little, a little sloppy, but all of that just kind of feels part and parcel with perhaps why I end up kind of connecting with it so much. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, it's trying a lot of things and in terms of adapting a, you know, Harlan Ellison, who is, you know, no stranger to controversy and controversial readings of his material. Um, you know, in terms of taking that, you know, that source and throwing everything you got at it on a budget, I, I think he made something weird and wacky and deserving of all of the of, of the um, you know successors that were inspired by it. Speaking of Harlan Ellison, like where do you stand as far as his works? So, man, Harlan Ellison has written a lot of stuff. And to to me, Harlan Ellison has sort of been in that space of, I, you know, I, I fell in love with Harlan Ellison in high school. And uh, just because it it really resonated with kind of where my head was. And just like, you know, your taste in music don't really change as you age. I, I kind of feel the same way. So I have no mouth and I must scream, strange wine, Shatterday. I, I just, I read a lot of his early stuff and I didn't realize until much later that, you know, some of the stuff that he was writing was worth talking about right was worth thinking about what he you know what he was trying to accomplish and his sort of the context of how he was writing and so i you know i recognize kind of where ellison fits in the general library of american science fiction and and cultural fiction and um you know i i appreciate what he has written are you a big fan I don't know if I've ever read any of his work. I, I mean, he's written a number of like episodes of TV shows that I'm familiar with. So that may be where I know him more. Definitely somebody that I feel like I need to invest a little more time with because I, I found this story to be really fascinating and I'd love to kind of get a sense of kind of the foundation of his work, you know? I feel like the 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 connections for Harlan Ellison for me, like I was also a huge Isaac Asimov fan and and so... He was sort of in the in the gang, uh, Harlan Ellison and Isaac Asimov of the the books that I was reading. And and now it's like, you know, that that leads directly to like Neil Gaiman and writers that I, I really appreciate. Yeah, I suppose to a to a certain extent, based on our conversation about LQ Jones, perhaps we could argue that the cinematography kind of also fits into that zone of feeling a little kind of rough and tumble, I suppose you yeah. could say. Yeah, I think you could say that. 
<laughs> rough and tumble is is the word, uh, especially <laughs> when they go underground. Man, there is nothing that feels like and and I I say this just because I'm thinking about he directed an episode of the original Hulk TV show. There's nothing that feels more like 70s Hulk episode than underground, especially in the Wedding Chapel semen depository. Like it was, <laughs> uh, it is, it looks just very right across the bow this is what you're going to get we're going to put the camera on sticks we're going to watch people running by it like it's 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 pretty uh straightforward filmmaking i I definitely felt that way too john arthur morrill is the cinematographer here here definitely seemed to be somebody who was more in the veins of kind of the genre cinematography uh through the 50s all the way into the 80s Things like Kingdom of the Spiders, uh, you know, and this, and uh, the daytime ended, the dark. It very much fits kind of that vibe of low-budget genre pictures that he was working on. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it does It does kind of have a feel. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting film. I'm glad we get to talk about it. So I guess that's it. So we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by No Ties, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Lampoon's European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. So there there was a thought of a number two. Indeed. How do you follow up with this? It would have been further adventures, essentially, of Vic and Blood. 
uh, LQ Jones wanted to work on a sequel. He actually started working on it, and it would have been where they encounter a female warrior named Spike. And according to him, the story would have been told from her perspective instead of Vic's perspective, which is interesting. And I, I guess he had talked to Ellison about this. Ellison was interested, but it never really went further than that. There was a point when there was this I talk of another sequel called A Girl and Her Dog, and that plan was scrapped when Tiger sadly passed away. It is something that has uh, kind of come up. It, it sounds actually like Ellison actually um, put Spike into, a as of 2018, a kind of a whole thing with A Girl and Her Dog, and he ended up publishing it as uh, the kind of the compilation book that he has, Blood's a Rover, which includes, they call it the A Boy and His Dog cycle. It's all of the different elements from A Boy and His Dog. It includes a prequel story that he wrote called Egg Sucker. This story, it includes the sequel story, Run Spot Run. It includes several graphic novels that had been done in the 80s. And so there's a variety of stories people really are drawn to this world, including Ellison, who apparently says that there has has been even uh, more, but he hasn't released. I guess he wrote a another part of it as a a script, but it's never been produced, and so that's just kind of where things are sitting. So I don't know. I think there's room for returning to this. I just don't know if any of the people interested, or if any of the people that were involved are interested. I mean, I know L.Q. Jones has, has passed away a few years ago. Harlan Ellison passed away. Um, Don Johnson could do it, but blood passed away. So what are you going to do? Yeah. What are you going to do? All right. Well, you could just CG blood. The entire blood is just a, it's just a CG character. <laughs> be the new call of the yeah. wild. Yeah. They're going to put, what's his name's brother, uh, Sean, what's his name in a green suit? <laughs> Sean Gunn. Since he's done playing Rocket. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about the awards. That's why we're here. Indeed, that is why we're here. This film had two wins with two other nominations. Over at the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Science Fiction Film, but lost to Rollerball, another film we'll be talking about later this series. Jo uh, Don Johnson won Best Actor, tying with James Conn for Rollerball. So that's a fantastic win for both of them. Yeah. At the Hugo Awards, this is very specifically why we're here, this Best Dramatic Presentation nomination that this film received. We should say the Hugo Awards... Uh, it is the World Science Fiction Society that has started putting this on in 1958, and it's very much a literary society, but they did start honoring films, the best dramatic presentation for theatrical films, television episodes, or other dramatized works related to science fiction or fantasy released in the previous calendar year. So we are here talking about those, and of course, this perfectly fits in, and this actually was the winner of the four nominees that we'll be talking about for this series. So that's pretty exciting. And then at the Nebula Awards, which is uh, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America Awards, this was also nominated for Best Dramatic Writing, but lost to, interestingly, Young Frankenstein. Ooh, what a fascinating uh, pairing. I would not double feature those. <laughs> that would be a tricky double feature. How did it do at the box office? Did this weirdo movie make money? Well, for his Ellis adaptation, Jones had a relatively small budget of $400,000, which largely he had to put together himself because no one wanted to fund it. That's just under $2.3 million in today's dollars. The movie premiered at the USA Film Festival in March 1975, then opened November 14th, 1975, opposite the Michael Apted film Stardust and the Western horror In of the Damned. 
From here, I find conflicting information, unfortunately. Um, it is said to not have been commercially successful at the box office and then later become a, became a cult hit. But IMDb listed as having earned $4 million domestically within a year of its release, which seems like a success. Unfortunately, I really have no way of knowing. Uh, so for now, though, I'm going to say it did earn $4 million domestically so that we have something in there. Perhaps that is what it... Um, did over the time it became a cold hit who knows eventually though it looks like perhaps it did earn some money back which would be about 22.8 million in today's dollars and lands with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $225,000 at them in the green Andy over time slow growth over over time yeah it's like watching a saguaro cactus grow Andy there's nothing like watching a saguaro cactus grow (laughs) I, I what a weird find I'm so glad we watched it and got to talk about it. It's not my favorite movie of all time, but I absolutely didn't hate it. And I'll probably watch it again. How's that? Yeah, this is one. When I finished it, I'm like, this might be one at some point down the road. I actually invest in buying on Blu-ray or whatever, because it's such an interesting story that just deserves to be uh, seen again. I, I find it to be something to really think about and stew on. So I had a great time with it. You just put it on loop and run it on your bedside table. That's what all I do. the time. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Awesome. I, I rotate it once a year. What's this yeah, year's movie that'll be on rotation <laughs> on <my> bedside table? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, John Carpenter's Dark Star. It is the future. Mankind has conquered the stars. He moves out to the endless interstellar reaches of the universe. An advanced exploration corps, a new breed of pioneer, must seek out unstable planets and destroy them. Drive sequence begun. Hit it, pin back. of the 21st century planet smashers dark star 20 years in space one million light years from earth their job is to clear a path for the colonization of space back home back home in malibu i used to surf a lot tally i used to be a great surfer travel in an infinite universe with mind-melting excitement from beyond the stars. Computer to bomb number 20. Return to the bomb bay immediately. But I have received the operational signal. I wish I had more time. Why don't you have more time? Because I must detonate. Happened, man. 
Confirmed. Power drive signal tag, man. Roger retracted. Lock all defensive systems. Dark Star. They are not lost in space. They're loose. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. Letterboxd, Andy. Oh, how do we handle Letterboxd? This movie is divisive and... Uh, in terms of letterbox, I've been looking at the reviews and the stars and people. This is it. It tears communities asunder. People that I that are in my friends list in letterbox. Some of them are one star. Some of them are five stars. How do I reconcile this absolute star mania on letterbox? What are you going to do? That is very tricky trying to come up with it. I just I found myself. Um, I think if I had remembered my place of watching this the first time, I probably would have said three stars. Um, and I don't know if I would have given it a heart. But now I'm like, you know what? There's this is a really fascinating film. I'm saying four stars and a heart for me. Oh, it's gone up for you. Yeah, it fascinating. Has gone up. Really enjoyed it. I. I'm actually going to be uh, siding with previous Andy on this movie. <laughs> and it's really because of that narrative hole in the middle that I feel unrequited. As much I en- as I enjoy what we got, it felt like it was snatching victory from the jaws or defeat from the jaws of victory. And uh, I just feel like it's missing some missing some story that I thought I, I think would would pace it up. And so, yeah, I'm going to go three stars in the heart and a heart that fan. Oh, yeah. Heart it. Heart it. It's Won- it- just wonky. Yeah, there is uh, definitely an interesting world that has been created here. And again, it just proves you don't need a huge budget to create a really interesting world that your story takes place in. And I thought LQ Jones did a great job here. So that lands us over on the next Reels Letterboxd um, profile with three and a half stars and a heart. Remember, you can find me at Soda Creek Film. You can find Pete at Pete Wright. And you can find the show at The Next Reel over at Letterboxd. So what did you think about A Boy and His Dog? We would love to hear your thoughts on this one. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends... 
our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterbox always doeth. As you might imagine, Andy, Letterboxd is divided on this movie. Oh, it is divided. And a lot of people like to write a lot of really long things. So long. This uh, There are some real dissertations on this movie. I went with three and a half stars, and I'm going to go first because you're drinking. It's from Jacob Knight. And uh, Jacob says... Bleak analog sci-fi in which Don Johnson plays a particularly horny rapist in the wastelands of post-World War IV We Skipped Three America, traversing the barren terrain while being telepathically berated by his shaggy sidekick, who, it turns out, sniffs out ladies for our man to forcefully fornicate with. Genuinely strange, in a way only 70s outsider art can be, with L.Q. Jones borrowing more than a little mean-spirited social critique from his buddy Sam Peckinpah, this is one of those movies where the shocking ending is a thing of legend and actually does live up to the hype in a bizarrely absurdist, more than a little misogynistic fashion. Particularly interesting in how it upends Johnson's all-American image, positing that even your heartthrobs can be sexually aggressive boobs who are guided through life by little more than their dicks and dogs. I think that sums up my feeling about it. And my rating. Perfect. Well, I ended up going with a five star and a heart by Youth Without God, who has this to say. And I, I, I picked this one. Um, it's an interesting one, and I think it ties in also so nicely with a film that we ended up talking about or we'll end up talking about for our member bonus episode for this month as part of this series, which we uh, ended up having our members vote on. And it is The Stepford Wives which very well could have fit into this Hugo Awards Best Dramatic Presentation category, even though it didn't get nominated. So here's the review. While the film has been criticized as misogynistic, a feminist interpretation of the plot might focus on the character of Quilla June and her ability to subvert patriarchal power structures. Of course, the film is a wicked satire, and in its radical, quote, boys will be boys slash dogs, end quote, plot, it is no different from the bleakness of the Stepford Wives approach. And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I think there's an interesting element to this is a, a bleak story about this patriarchal, uh, misogynistic society, but we're really seeing exactly what it has done to the women and how, you know, at least with Quilla June's case, how she has to kind of stand up and try finding her way own way out of this. Dude, that is actually really astute. Like the entire point is that look at what Stepford Wives is a boy and his dog in the suburbs. They just are recreating fake women for sex and accolades in Stepford Wives. It, it is the, it's, it's the same commentary because everything sucks <laughs> when it comes to gender relationships in this, in this period. That's the commentary. So I, I, think it's, I think it's okay. It's okay for films to make strong points. Here, here. There you go. Yeah, we did it. All right. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. 
The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.